This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. I would like to start out today's show by thanking those of you who have written us to offer encouragement in what I guess is plain to some people. <laughs> are some troubled times, at least for us, because, yes, Radio Parallax is operating under some difficult circumstances. We've lost uh, the area where we usually recorded in Sacramento and have largely plopped ourselves down in the East Bay. But uh, despite relocating, we are really grounded in the greater Davis-slash-Sacramento-slash-Northern-Central Valley area. But not to belabor all of that, thank you for your support. Obviously, we've not been doing a lot of uh, original interviews in the recent uh, past here, last few weeks and months. We would like to do more of that uh, before we hang it up. And when I say hang it up, I mean for now, because I do anticipate us being back in 2017 in perhaps a slightly modified format. We do hope to be new and improved. That's what we all want, isn't it? At any rate, without further ado, let us begin this program where we left off last week. And I think where we left off last week was talking about uh, some of the things in the Sacramento News and Review, the best of Sacramento, and I think I made mention of uh, the excellent voice that comes to you through Kitty O'Neill. Can't say we like her station too much, but, you know, she's a talented professional. But I was struck uh, that after complimenting her in the program, I was driving to the East Bay from Sacramento, and who was on the air but Kitty O'Neill. And what she said had me very perplexed. She was reading a uh, news story talking about how uh, this last week would be a dark moon. To which she added, well, you won't, you won't be able to see it, but it will be a dark moon on the 30th as the moon goes past the sun. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the hell is she talking about? I mean, every lunar month, the moon gets close to the sun as it becomes a new moon. And you're familiar with the phases of the moon. The new moon, the crescent moon... The waxing gibbous, the full moon, the waning gibbous, the quarter moon, the last quarter moon. You know you know what I'm talking about. Don't forget the blue moon. Well, yes, Mr. Miller, thank you for reminding me that there is a blue moon, which is, which is what happens when you have – it's a very artificial thing. It's the second full moon in a given calendar month. The moon takes something like uh, 28, 29 days to, to go around. And, and achieve the same position, a new full moon. And sometimes if it's the first or second of the month, you get two in a given month. Or at least that's what they're claiming a blue moon is. I'm not even sure that's a true story. Well, it, yes, in this case, the so-called dark moon is the second new moon taking place in a given month. And yeah, we think that the whole thing's pretty dumb too. And sadly, the kind of thing they would play over on KFBK. And we exonerate Kitty in this. She was just reading the copy that they put in front of her. And uh, in other space-related news, because we do like to talk about space stuff, it was noted about the same time that the European Space Agency was going to um, celebrate, I guess, or, or commemorate the passing of the Rosetta orbiter, which is around the comet 67P. Now, yes, it had a lander on it that didn't work so well. The harpoons that were supposed to plunge into the comet and stop it failed, so it bounced around and wound up in a crevasse. You may have read about this. It worked for a couple days, but unfortunately only for a couple days. It might have lasted for weeks and months. 
At any rate, the European Space Agency decided at the end of the mission to crash the orbiter into the comet. Frankly, I was looking forward to this. Because I'm old enough to remember, dear listener, the landings on the moon back in the 1960s. As a ramp-up to trying to get men on the lunar surface, you had to send robots. And um, before we had robots that made soft landings, we had robots that made what were called hard landings. In other words, they just plowed right in the lunar surface, but they were taking pictures the whole way. So you got like this shot of like, well, they're five miles out, and now they're four miles out, and now they're three miles out, and pretty soon, boy, those craters are coming to looming up at you. And then the screen goes black. It was very dramatic. And I think it really kind of got people kind of excited about this, uh, this whole going to the moon thing. Well, the people at the European Space Agency apparently are not as wise as the good folks over at NASA and the PR department because although they announced they were going to crash the orbiter into the comet, when I went to the web to see what that would look like, anticipating something like these old Ranger missions back from the 60s, uh, well, what you got was a bunch of guys looking glum and sort of head down, putting their hands on each other's shoulders and lamenting the fact that the spacecraft was now gone. And... Who cares about that? Why don't you show the crash photos? I mean, crashing a spacecraft into a comet, it's just, you know, never been done. Why not insert a little drama into this? Now, apparently if you go on the web, you can find, well, this is the this is the last photo that we took, and this is a little bit before that, and there are photos out there, but there's none of this, like, impending doom for the spacecraft kind of drama in the equation. And frankly, what's wrong with that? Anyway, it's no secret we're big boosters of space exploration on this program. We'll continue to do so, but, you know, I just wish they would, you know, put a little more pizzazz in it sometimes. And yes, the Curiosity rover is in the Gale Crater, making its way up what are called the Murray Hills, I think is what they're calling them. And uh, that was kind of poignant for us because Bruce Murray was somebody we would have dearly liked to have had on this program, and um, back in 2004 when the, I think it was, um, Spirit rover landed on on Mars, there was a Planet Fest in Pasadena. I spoke to Mr. Murray about coming on the show, and he said he would do so. The fault of the follow-up lies solely with me. Then again, I felt that if I was going to interview Bruce Murray, quite a distinguished planetary scientist, uh, I should prepare for it and be ready. And frankly, I never got that preparation under my belt. So maybe it was better that I didn't do it, because what would be worse, dear listener, than one of those interviews <laughs> analogous to the Chris Farley Saturday Night Live interview with Paul McCartney. Farley asked a question. I, I don't know the exact question. But on the lines of like, you remember like uh, Lady Madonna? Yes, Chris. Yeah, that was that was awesome. Is in fact Radio Parallax's policy to be prepared for the interview or doggone it, just don't do it. It's a principle we have strayed from on very few occasions. And most of the occasions where we did, we were awfully sorry. Oh, and by the way, we hinted strongly last week we'd be talking to Russ Baker on this week's program. Sadly, we could not pull that together, but Russ is still in the pipeline, and we will see what we can do for next week. All right, what do we talk about here? Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's do some medical stuff. As a practicing physician, I have actually very seldom done medical topics on this program. They do weave their way into the programming but it's not the main thrust of what we do here. But we have devoted a fair amount of time to talking about this so-called epidemic of opioid abuse going on in this country. And note that uh, Jerry Brown did sign the bill that got to him 
a couple weeks ago, uh, being called the opioid law. It forces all doctors in California to look up a database set up by the state to confirm that the patient before you is not doctor shopping and trying to obtain opioids from other physicians and in, in that way abuse the use of these narcotic medications. We didn't think that was such a good idea and we still don't. And what really kind of chaps my behind a bit is to read a little uh, summary of, of this law. This is actually coming from the East Bay Times, which is, I'm not even sure what makes up the East Bay Times. It might be the old Oakland Tribune, the, the Tri-City Argus. I, I'm not sure. But it basically is also linked to the San Jose Mercury. And um, it's actually been quite a change to read this paper after spending so many years with the Sacramento Bee. I would say that it um, has some deficiencies. Nevertheless, a uh, writer for the Bay Area News Group, in this case a Tracy Seipel, wrote the following. Dateline Sacramento, almost 13 years after a driver hooked on prescription painkillers drove into Bob Pack's two young children on a sidewalk, killing them both. The Danville father on Tuesday finally got the call he's been waiting so long to receive. Governor Jerry Brown signed in his law Senate Bill 482, which will require doctors to check a database for a patient's prescription history before prescribing opioids and other potentially dangerous drugs. It was like a deep sigh of relief for me, and it hit me kind of tearfully at the same time. Pack, a 61-year-old tech entrepreneur said of the call from Brown's office because you know not only has it been a long effort but it's just immediately made me think of my two children and their little faces and the loss and yes this undoubtedly is a great tragedy that someone plowed into his children but if you read on the question of the opioid responsibility is a little fuzzy it turned out the perp in this case a 49 year old woman had three previous DUI convictions and was driving with a suspended license. She'd managed to obtain Vicodin prescriptions from six different Kaiser Permanente doctors, all unaware of each other's prescriptions. She was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, at the time of the accident, the driver of the car had alcohol, Vicodin, and muscle relaxants in her system. Now, you have to ask, which do you think was most responsible for her poor driving? I dare say you know many people, dear listener, who are of necessity using opioid medications for chronic pain issues. Yes, in high doses, they can be loopy and it can alter the sensorium, but many times you will not even be aware that these people are on these medications, as opposed to someone who's drunk. Usually, that's quite apparent. Now, it's no doubt true, if you mix opioids and muscle relaxants with alcohol, there is an additive effect, and anyone who's mixing those three should not be behind the wheel of a car. But the person in this case had three previous DUIs and obviously was not responding to law enforcement efforts to curtail her drunk driving. Will doctors being forced to look up a database before they prescribe opioids make a dent in this sort of behavior? I doubt it. Mr. Millen suggests one alternative might be to have liquor stores look up a database to see whether someone's got DUIs before they hand over a bottle of Captain Morgan. I'd have to agree that, honestly, that makes more sense to me than the bill that was just signed. And the question is, are doctors going to, to do this? I mean, you know, because let's face it, doctors are a little bit, how, how should I say this? 
overregulated in many instances, not just by the state, but by their HMOs, by insurance companies, by the pharmaceutical industry they have to deal with. I don't know. And we also don't know what the penalty is going to be if doctors don't look up the cures website. We don't know how they're going to enforce this. But like a lot of things the government does, it, it, it looks as though something's being done to, to help us all. And speaking of Governor Brown's phony baloney efforts to help us all, there is this continuing issue of the Delta Tunnels. I've been hoping to hear what the Society for Environmental Journalists uh, were told by the various water interests. I know that Russ Baker was given a tour and um, listened to a spiel from the, the Westlands Water District. While having a beer with him, I tried to put a different spin on it than the one he had been given. At any rate, we'll probably hash that out in a future conversation. Frankly, Mr. Baker knew very little about uh, California water politics, but I tried to assure him that in California, that is the basis of our politics. It is being claimed that uh, Jerry Brown's twin tunnels are going to help the salmon run, but uh, uh, fish experts like Dan Bacher laugh at that suggestion. And we've posed the question in this program before, and I think we'll take a moment to pose it again, that um, if this whole plan is part of a Bay Delta conservation program, You just have to ask how it is you're going to improve the ecology of the Delta by removing its water. When someone can explain how that's going to work, then maybe we'll get on board. Christian's saying all this. I'm still looking at Dale Kessler's article from The Bee, dated August 3rd, that opened up by saying, California officials Tuesday released a detailed environmental blueprint for Governor Jerry Brown's controversial Delta Tunnels project, saying the $15.5 billion plan minimizes potential effects, that's in quotes, on endangered fish species whose populations have dwindled following decades of water pumping. And after hearing this fish story from California officials, two federal agencies who are responsible for overseeing the Delta's fish populations, to wit, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service, now have to take the document and decide whether the tunnels would violate the Endangered Species Act. We'll continue to follow this. And some better news involving endangered species. Uh, It is now believed that a native California frog, once on the brink of extinction, is making an encouraging comeback, at least in Yosemite National Park. These frogs were once the most abundant amphibian in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. They were reportedly so numerous, they bounded by the dozens into lakes and streams with each step of an approaching person. But the numbers began to plummet roughly a century ago as they were gobbled up by non-native trout stocked for fishing. Disease later struck, removing them from 90% of their native habitat in the Sierra. Efforts to save the frog from extinction have led to a sevenfold increase in their numbers in Yosemite in the past 20 years, according to Roland Knapp, a University of California, Sierra Nevada Aquatic Research Laboratory. Yosemite National Park called the rebound a rare success story in the world of endangered species, and one that makes them hopeful the yellow-legged frog would eventually come off the endangered species list. We'd also like to take note that in the wake of the override of President Obama's veto of the law that would have allowed American citizens to sue people in Saudi Arabia over their aiding and abetting the 9-11 attacks, well, um, someone's done it. A 9-11 widow has sued the Saudi Arabians. Stephanie Ross de Simone, widowed when her husband was killed at the Pentagon on September 11th, has sued the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia just two days after Congress enacted legislation allowing Americans to do so. 
Stephanie Ross de Simpson alleges that the kingdom provided material support to al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden. Writing about this in Bloomberg News, Andrew Harris reminded us that a U.S. commission that investigated the 2001 attacks said in a 2004 report that, quote, it found no evidence that the Saudi government as an institution or senior, or senior officials within the Saudi government funded al-Qaeda, end quote. But Mr. Harris noted that long classified portions of a congressional inquiry that were released in July found the hijackers may have had help from some Saudi officials. Duh. And yes, we'll sure continue to follow this story as it unfolds. Wouldn't you like to see George W. Bush subpoenaed to explain his relationship with Bandar Bush, the Saudi ambassador, who was so close to the Bush family that he was given that nickname? I mean, it seems a little more relevant to, you know, life in America than dragging Bill Clinton in to talk about what exactly he did with Monica Lewinsky. Speaking of Bill Clinton, we hope you caught that frontline special on The Choice. I believe it is available on YouTube in its entirety, and boy, they did a great job with it. I must say that um, after seeing what poor Hillary had to go through with Bill, I, I'm, I, I have to say I, I, I like her a little more. I'm not saying I like her a lot, but I do like her a little more. She had to put up with some real crap. Let's, let's put it that way. On the other hand, after watching that Frontline special, it's just, it's, I, I like Donald Trump even less. I did also note in the Frontline special someone we've been thinking about interviewing on this program, Roger Stone. He's currently serving as an aide to Mr. Trump. He wrote a very interesting book about the relationship of Lyndon Baines Johnson to his predecessor, John F. Kennedy, implying strongly that the people he hung out with, specifically former President Richard Nixon, to whom he was fairly close, suspected that LBJ had something to do with it. Now, we ain't going to get into that today. But um, let's just say we've, we've entertained the notion of speaking with Mr. Stone about some of his provocative statements. But how about this item from The Week magazine? Several leading Democratic lawmakers have asked the FBI to investigate whether Russia is trying to tip the election to Donald Trump after revelations that foreign hackers have gained access to our state voter registration databases in Illinois and Arizona. Election officials from the two states revealed this week that they had temporarily taken their systems offline in June after they became aware of the breaches, which intelligence officials say came from Russia. In Illinois, authorities said the hackers had accessed the personal information of up to 200,000 voters. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid asked the FBI to investigate Trump advisor Roger Stone, who claims to be in communication with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and Carter Page, who traveled to Moscow in July. Roger Stone denied any knowledge of the hack and said Reid is essentially accusing me of treason. It's the new McCarthyism. Well, Stone must know something about McCarthyism. I mean, uh, Trump's former advisor, the guy that really got the ball rolling with him back in the 60s and 70s, was none other than Roy Cohn, a notorious aide to tail gunner Joe back in the 50s when he was accusing everybody in the country of aiding and abetting the communists, if not being communists themselves. Anyway, we're going to take a break here in a minute. Uh, I, I hope you caught the Pence versus... Kane debate. Personally, I thought Governor Pence uh, did the best he could to defend Donald Trump's statements. 
which frankly is a tall order of business. Personally, I thought Senator uh, Tim Kaine acquitted himself pretty well against Governor Mike Pence, but uh, that does possibly reflect a bit of bias on my part. Most people seem to have found the whole thing to be a bit of a snoozer, but but I thought there were some pretty fiery exchanges going on between those guys, and um, I don't know. I thought it was pretty interesting, particularly if you when if you think about it, the names Mike Pence and Tim Kaine were not on anybody's lips a year ago when they were talking about the presidential race. These two guys got plugged from obscurity by the candidate chosen by each party. I mean, and potentially either of these guys could be literally a heartbeat away from the presidency, which is unfortunately how our system works. All right, sorry to say I'm going to have to leave it there on uh, this week's program. We'll probably try and bring you two uh, copies of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on next week's program. And if we can, do our usual boilerplate of jokes, good news, anecdotes, quotes, quips, etc. Although I think I will close today's program with a quote we've used before, but I think we'll use again. It comes from Voltaire. He once said, To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. We here at Radio Parallax would like to think there's nobody we're not allowed to criticize, but um, we're probably kidding ourselves. All right, this segment was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week, hopefully with Russ Baker in tow, possibly in a dual interview with one of our favorites, Jeannie Keltner. We'll see you then.